Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. We're in the book of Acts. This is actually the only book that uh, we will stop and do the whole message on one book. Uh, In the sermon tonight, we will look at the book of Romans all the way through Titus because the theme of Paul's writings are so tied together. We will look at Romans through Titus in this next message, but I want us to look at Acts chapter 1, and I'm going to ask you to turn to Acts chapter 1. As Christ builds his church, churches come in all sizes and flavors, and believers come in all sizes and flavors and styles and preferences. Uh, I've had the privilege of being in in circles outside of Baptist circles. I feel sorry for people that have never preached anywhere or been anywhere other than a Baptist church because sometimes we accuse the Presbyterians of being God's chosen frozen, but some of you this morning had a hard time thawing out. (laughs) And we can get caught up in our differences and our preferences and our styles that we like or or don't like. But there are characteristics of the church that ought to be true anywhere that you go. In a few weeks, we're going to begin a series called the I Search for the Right Church. What do you look for in a church? Well, the first place that I would look is in the book of Acts, especially in Acts chapter 2, and that's one of the passages that we'll be looking at when we begin that series. But when you talk about the church... The church has certain characteristics, and there is a sense in which you can walk into a church and know whether or not the Spirit of God is present in that church. You can know whether the Spirit is being grieved. You can know if He is welcomed and wanted. You can know if the power of God rests on a church, and there is no example of that any greater than the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, you remember that we talked about in the last message as we ended up the four Gospels, that it ended with the resurrection, the ascension of Christ, and the second coming, and now Acts begins with the ascension of Christ, a reference to his coming, Acts chapter 1 and verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Here's what you're supposed to know, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken away from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven." Now, before we get into the study of the church, let's look at that little phrase, he will come in the same way. What does that mean? First of all, it means that when Jesus comes back, he will personally return. He will not send an angel. He will not send a messenger. He will personally return himself. 
Secondly, it means he will visibly return. Visibly return. He's going to be seen. People are going to know that Christ has come back. The church is going to recognize it, Revelation 1-7. He will bodily return. He will bodily return, and he will return to a specific place, which we talked about in the last message, that he will descend, and there's going to come a day when he will take his seat on the throne of David in the New Jerusalem, and he will reign and he will rule. The book of Acts is not a doctrinal book. It is a historical book. That's why it is a transitional book. Uh, One of the laws of hermeneutics, which is a, a law of studying scripture, which we've talked about in a previous series, one of the law of hermeneutics is very basic to the book of Acts that you need to understand that you don't use Acts to develop doctrine. Acts is about historical events that happened in the life of the church. It is a transitional book from the Gospels to the founding of the church. It is a bridge book, if you will, from where doctrine is taught beginning in the book of Romans and the rest of the way through the epistles and the life of Christ is given to us in the gospels. There is no definite article in the title so that really the title of the book of Acts instead of Acts of the Apostles could read this way. Some of the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. It's not everything that happened during those early years of the church. But these are some of the acts, and they're not the acts of the apostles. That's not really even a good way to look at it. These are the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles because God doesn't share his credit with anybody, not even the apostles. And and so God has given us a book that gives us some selective events, some snapshots of the early church. Now you say, "Why, why don't we know more? Well, it's the same reason as in the Old Testament. You have snapshots and events. Once you get past the flood story in the book of Genesis, you realize that the majority of the scriptures deal with the history of the nation of Israel. God does not concern himself in the scriptures with Babylon and with Nineveh except as reference points. He ignores them because they are incidental to his plan of teaching the story of redemption through his people Israel and now the story of redemption through Christ and through the church following after Christ. In fact, uh, A.T. Pearson said, one little village one ruined inn, one despised stable, one manger, which is long ago rotted into dust, is more precious in the eyes of God than all of Babylon and Nineveh. God takes nothing and makes it something. God takes the insignificant and makes it significant. God has not chosen many wise, but he's chosen many who are not wise and the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And that's what the Bible is. The Bible is foolishness to those who don't believe because it doesn't make sense that the God of glory, that his plan of salvation would be the way it's revealed in scripture because we can't help (laughs) because it's all of him. All we do is cooperate and we yield, but we, we don't add anything to our salvation. And so when, when the book of Acts is written, 
It limits itself to the story of what is going on in the church. It doesn't deal about what's really happening in Rome. You get references to Agrippa and to Felix and to other rulers, but they are incidental and just a part of the story of the life of Paul at that point and his trip to Rome. You see in your notes about the three persecutions and the two main events. There are two main cities that you need to always go back to in the book of Acts, and that is Jerusalem and Antioch. Jerusalem, where the gospel was presented to the Jews. Antioch, where the gospel went out not only to Jews, but to the Gentiles. And there are many firsts in the book of Acts. There's a law of first occurrence that happens in the study of Scripture. Anytime something is mentioned first, it is a primary reference for what it is supposed to look like. The the first time the just shall live by faith appears sets that stage for the other times it appears in Habakkuk and the times it appears in the New Testament. But it appears first in the book of Genesis. It's a law of first. Let's look at the first in the book of Acts. First of all, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come and go on people. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes to live in people. The permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't come, stay a while, leave, check back in. The Holy Spirit comes to indwell us and to equip us and to empower us. Secondly is the first local assembly. The first local assembly. Now we have books that are being propagated today and they're all over the market. I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. Well, then you need to tear the book of Acts out of your Bible. Because Jesus loved the church and died for it. You need to tear Ephesians out of your Bible. If you don't love the church, but you say you love Jesus, then you need to start ripping pages out of the scripture that relate to the church. Because you don't love what Jesus loves. And this whole idea that I can love Jesus and not be affiliated with a local church, the law of first occurrence, they gathered together as a local assembly. And the estimates are that within a matter of a few years, that one church in Jerusalem had 100,000 members. So don't talk about, well, the church is too big for me. I need a church that's small. A church that's small is often a church that's not doing anything. Because if you're living the Christ-like life, and if you're living in the power of the Holy Spirit, and if you're witnessing the way that God has told us to witness, people are going to come to try to figure it out. I spoke for another denomination, and they, they told me, quite honestly, they've got it, and we don't. And they still had me preach, so I went and preached, being my Baptist self. <laughs> and I preached for them, and so I asked, I asked the person, I said, tell me how many churches you've got. And he told me, I said, what's the average size of your church? He said, the average size of our church and our denomination is 46 people. What I wanted to say was, well, y'all are not doing a very good job. Because if you believe that healing's in the atonement, if you, I could go to the nursing home and get 46 members this afternoon. I mean, come on. If you believe it, why isn't it showing up in your church? You see, the local assembly has a purpose for accountability, for fellowship, for gathering. Then there's the first act of church discipline. We don't hear about church discipline much anymore, but there's the first act of church discipline. Imagine what would happen if God struck down everybody that lied in church. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) We wouldn't have been singing victory in Jesus. We'd have been singing because he lives, I can face tomorrow. (laughs) 
It was the first system of church government. By the way, there's nothing in Scripture, I'll say this for my Baptist friends who may watch us on television, there's nothing in Scripture, nothing in Scripture to validate boards or committees. Nothing. The church is a theocracy. It's not my church. It's not our church. It's not your church. The church is God's church. And God expects his church to be holy. That's why there was church discipline. Imagine the next time somebody said, I've given a sacrificial gift. Imagine when they came to their next building program. And somebody said, I've given a sacrificial gift. And, and the wife kind of nudged them and said, you know, the last person that said that and didn't do it, God killed them. Have we really given a sacrificial gift? The first sign of church discipline. Why church discipline? Because God expects his church to be distinctive, different from the world. Not a social gathering, but a distinctive body. It's the first martyr. Stephen, Acts chapter 7. The first martyr. The first missionary is in Philip, Acts chapter 8. The first time the gospel was given to the Gentiles is in Acts 10. Peter sharing with Cornelius. And he went reluctantly, but he went. And then the first use of the name Christian, Acts chapter 11. By the way, which was not used by the believers. It was used by the world examining their lives. And they were called Christians in Antioch, which means they looked like a little bit like Jesus. Acts chapter 11, they were first called Christians. And the first organized strategy for missions, Acts chapter 13 through 28. Now, it's in your notes, but I would just want to point it out to you. When the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, he fell on them. Then he came in them, and then he worked through them. The key event at Pentecost and the theme of Acts chapter 2 is the resurrection of Christ and the power of Jesus Christ to save the lost. God has given us a message and a theme in the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches, you remember what he said in Acts chapter 1? Jesus said, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. Now here's what happens to us. We get hung up and we argue over things like rushing wind and tongues and things like that. And those are issues that can be discussed and there are differences of interpretation in those events. But here, here's what I just want you to understand. If you're not sharing the love of Jesus Christ with other people, you miss the point of the beginning of the book of Acts. Amen. Because that's the point. Is to receive power, to share the gospel in Jerusalem. That's where they started. That's where Peter started. And I always find that sometimes, I, because I've got friends across theological spectrums. I've got friends in every corner that you can imagine. And, and we love each other. We sometimes agree. We sometimes we don't agree. But we love each other because we do agree on essentials about Jesus Christ and about the Holy Spirit, about the second coming and all those things. So, so we kind of ignore the things that would cause us to be divided and focus on the things that would cause us to be united. But I, I, I was, as I was studying this, I got to thinking, you know, uh, I've had people tell me that I need to have certain things. And so I thought, you know, if I got to have that, then I tell you what, let's just kind of go down through Acts chapter 2 and see what it is we all ought to have if we had a Pentecostal church. What it is, we would, verse 42, Acts chapter 2, 
we would all show up for the Lord's Supper. Hello? We wouldn't have what members of this church have said from time to time, oh, I'm not going to go tonight. It's just the Lord's Supper. If we were a Pentecostal spirit-filled church, we'd all show up for the Lord's Supper. So if the Lord's Supper is insignificant to you, then I got news for you. You don't understand the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We'd all show up for prayer meeting. That means that tonight at 5.30, instead of 200 standing out there and yapping about things that won't matter two seconds after you're dead, you'd be in here praying when you're supposed to be in here praying, doing what you're supposed to be doing. Boy, I have hit a nerve. I have hit a nerve. Man, pick up your feet because I got steel in these heels. I mean, uh, verse 43, our worship would be spontaneous. I mean, we'd just worship. Verse 44, we'd sell our property and all our possessions. I don't see anybody in America volunteering to do that. <laughs> Let's just sell everything and pull it in and Everybody gets what they need. Verse 45, we'd be of one mind, there'd be togetherness. Verse 47, the Lord would be adding to the church daily. And so here's the question. You can write this by Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Is your experience with God a daily one? Or is it just a Sunday morning one? Is your experience with God a daily experience? The truth is, the power in the book of Acts is available today. But we do not live obeying the commandment to be filled with the Spirit. And we do not live in a daily surrender to the Lordship of Christ. And if we did, we would see more power, more people saved. We would be more generous. We would pray more. We would serve more. We would do more because God's power would not let us stay as we are. Amen. That's the message of the book of Acts. Acts was given. Now remember, this is unmistakable evidence to the Jews. Pentecost was primarily to the Jews who had gathered together for Passover. It is unmistakable evidence of the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. It is unmistakable evidence. It is another act of grace on the part of God to the Jewish people to recognize and embrace Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And when you see the gospel begin to move, because remember it began in Jerusalem and in Judea. And so in Jerusalem and Judea, you see far more signs and wonders than you do later on in the book of Acts as it moves to the Gentiles because the signs and wonders were signs to the Jews that this is not your father's Oldsmobile. This is not another prophet. This is not another teacher. This resurrected Christ has come back in the power of his Holy Spirit, and you have an opportunity to respond to the gospel. So it was evidence to them, and the, and the signs begin to wane. But the, what does a spirit-filled church look like? Well, you read the epistles. You read Paul's letter. You, so what does the Holy Spirit do when he fills you? Let me give you four things. First of all, he empowers you to witness. He empowers you to witness. That's the first thing that happened after they prayed, the Spirit came, and they went out of that room and they shared the gospel. You say, well, I don't know how to witness. The Holy Spirit will help you. 
All he needs is an available vessel. The Holy Spirit will help you. He empowers you to witness. Secondly, he makes you love the church. They were gathered together. Listen, I love to be with God's people. I love to be with God's people. I, I love to be around God's people. I, I'm an only child. Uh, most of my family is dead or doesn't claim me. And, uh, you know, I, I just love to be with God's people because I have people in the church that I am closer to and share more with than I do members of my immediate family. Why is that? Because there's a oneness in Christ that brings us together that it's not about that we have the same socioeconomic life or that we have the same skin color. It's that we have the same Lord. And so in the same Lord, I have a oneness with people and I can go anywhere in the world and I can meet brothers and sisters in Christ. I, I, I can go to the Brooklyn Tabernacle. I can go overseas. I can go to the Church of God of Prophecy and preach to them. I can go to the Methodist Church. I can go to the Presbyterian Church. I can go wake up some churches. I, I, I can go all kinds of places. And I will find people that are like-minded and like-hearted. You, you see... We're a living example of that, folks, in the fact that what God has done through Sherwood, through, through what we've done with the movies and everything else, those movies are not just being distributed by Baptist. <laughs> you understand that, don't you? I mean, there, there are all kinds of people across denominational and cultural lines that are using the ministries of this church. Why? Common ground. Common ground. We gather together. Thirdly, he motivates you to give. He motivates you to give. Barnabas sold what he had. The churches, as you look at the Macedonians, as Paul writes to the Corinthians and talks about their giving, he motivates you to invest in eternal things. And fourthly, he compels you to be involved in the church's mission, vision, and purpose. And the church's mission, vision, and purpose can be defined in two phrases, the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. The Great Commission, go into all the world, the Great Commandment. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to know what the mission, vision, and purpose of a church ought to be, it's defined in those two great commandments that God has given us. The Great Commission and the Great Commandment to love. There are three key words in Acts that will show up over and over again. Spirit, grace, and together. Spirit, grace, and together, which means that there are no pockets and cliques in a New Testament church. It's not, well, I just want to be with this group of people. Or I just want to be with that group of people. Listen, this is one of the reasons why we emphasize generations is because in the New Testament church, it's not we just have a church for old people or we just have a church for young people or this is just for me or this is just for them. It, when a New Testament church, it's like a family reunion. We all get together and we may not like the clothes that Aunt Sue wears, but Aunt Sue's chicken pot pie is worth coming to the reunion for. Amen. Does that make sense? It means that some of you may say, I just hate that song, Victory in Jesus. It just drives me crazy. I don't like that foot stomping. I don't like that hand clapping. And then some of you say, no, if it hasn't been written since 1990, it's not a good song. And both of you are right and both of you are wrong. Because it's not about you. It's about worshiping Him. 
And if I can help somebody else worship by keeping my mouth shut and not complaining, then I'll do it. Because the church is to be together in its mission, in its vision, and in its purpose. The key verse, you will receive power, you will be witnesses. Let me give you the outline. Y'all are not listening fast enough today. Chapters 2 through 7, you say, well, you're the one that said add the song. So, <laughs> Chapters 2 through 7, it's in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12, it's in Judea and Samaria. Chapter 13 and following, the remotest part of the earth. It is a widening circle of influence and evangelism. It begins in Jerusalem, but it doesn't stop there. It expands to Judea, to Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, two quick things here. Acts chapter 1 through chapter 12. Peter is the central character. He is primarily speaking to a Jewish audience. And the key word in Acts 1 through 12 is repent. So when you're reading Acts 1 through 12, although Paul comes onto the scene, Peter is the predominant person up through chapter 10, and he is preaching primarily to the Jews. But in chapter 10, there begins to be the transition so that Paul becomes a primary character in the scriptures. And in chapter 12 and following, as it begins to pick up on the life of Paul, you see the changes. But the message of Peter is primarily to the Jews, and the message is repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Five times in Matthew, six times in Mark, Jesus said, preach the gospel of the kingdom. So look, if you would, at Acts 2.22. Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man... Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, it didn't catch God by surprise. This wasn't, oops, I've lost control. God designed it and God planned it before it ever happened. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again. Verse 36. Therefore... Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, listen, remember he's talking to Jews, for the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord will call to himself. So what does it mean? The gospel to the Jews means they were to preach to the Jews once more, Jesus as Messiah, and they were to preach a personal salvation, a personal salvation that the sacrificial system was no longer in effect, that the offerings were no longer needed, that Christ had been the fulfillment of everything pictured in the tabernacle, in the temple, in the offerings. He was the fulfillment of that, and it was God's act of grace on Israel to give them another opportunity after the resurrection to believe. Because the Scripture says, to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles, but many refused to believe. Now, about Acts chapter 12, you have a Gentile Pentecost, if you will. 
The Spirit descends on the house of Cornelius. And in Acts chapter 13, remember Acts 1 through 12, primarily it's Simon Peter, primarily it's the Jews, and the key word is repent. Acts 13 through 28, it's Paul, it's primarily to the Gentiles, and the key word is believe. To the Jews, repent. To the Gentiles, believe. And the last part is filled with Paul's missionary journeys. Let me just give you the breakdown on them very quickly. The first journey is in chapter 13 and 14. His first missionary journey. The church and its commitment to missions dates back to the book of Acts. The second missionary journey is chapter 15 through chapter 18 and verse 22. Chapter 15 and chapter 18 and verse 22. The third journey is chapter 18 through chapter 21. And then there's finally the trip to Rome, and that's after chapter 27 and 28. Luke chapter 1. Remember, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. He also writes the book of Acts. Luke chapter 1, he says, all that Jesus began to do. Acts is all that Jesus continued to do through the Holy Spirit. Luke is what Jesus began to do. Acts is volume 2, what Jesus continued to do through the working of the Holy Spirit. And so he brings together, Luke does, the Gospels and ties them with the book of Acts. You shall be my witnesses. Let me read to you John 15, 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. Acts 15, 26 and 27 was fulfilled at Pentecost. Now, turn if you would to Acts 15. Acts 15, because I believe Acts 15 is a crucial chapter in the book of Acts. You remember, if you're a good student of the Bible, that the Judaizers and the Gnostics and others would come in and try to add to or take away from the gospel. The Judaizers would say that people needed to become Jews first and then become Christians, that they needed to be circumcised before they could become Christians, that they needed to follow the old Jewish laws. And they would follow Paul around from town to town, village to village, everywhere he went, causing him headache and heartache. I mean, they just caused problems all the time in the life of Paul. And finally, they had a church conference. And this church conference was not to vote on the budget. This church conference was not to decide on a building program. This was the most essential meeting of that New Testament church. It was a conference to confirm and affirm what is God's plan of salvation. And so they met and they discussed. Peter gave a testimony at that conference. Paul and Barnabas gave testimonies about what was being done among the Gentiles. And the conclusion of that conference, James stood up and it said, it seems good to me, James being the head of the church at Jerusalem, he said, it seems good to me and the Holy Spirit that this is what we conclude. And what did they conclude? They concluded that salvation was in Christ alone, that you did not have to 
go through a ritual to be saved, that it wasn't baptism that saved you, that it wasn't joining a church that saved you, that it wasn't doing good works that saved you, that salvation is by faith in Christ alone, that I cannot do anything to add to my salvation. I can do things because I have been saved. But there is nothing I bring to the table that makes me worthy of being saved. I am saved by the grace of God and by putting my faith in Jesus Christ when under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, I recognize I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I have sinned against a holy God. There is a gap between me and God that cannot be bridged except through the person of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ built that bridge, he said that whosoever will may come. And he lays on the hearts of people in a worship service, in a crusade, in a Bible school, at a camp, at an encounter at a gas station, wherever it might be. He lays on the hearts of people that I realize that there's something missing in my life. What Billy Graham has often called that God-shaped vacuum in our lives that we cannot fill with drugs, with alcohol, with sex, with money, with anything else. That life is empty and vain and I need something more and that something more comes to us in an awareness of the convicting power of the Holy Spirit who says what you need is Jesus. You need Christ to come into your heart and to change your life. You need to turn around. You need to repent. That means you're walking in this direction and you turn around and you go a completely opposite direction. You need to repent and believe. Believe what? Believe what the Word of God says about Jesus. That Christ is the only way. He is the only hope. He is the only truth. He is the only life. And apart from Him, you can't be saved. That's what you need to believe. And when you believe that, you come to him not in pieces. You come to him giving him your all. Now, I've got good news and bad news. If you're trying to figure out another way, the bad news is there is no other way. The good news is there is a way. The bad news is there is no other truth. The good news is he's the truth. The bad news is you don't have any hope apart from Christ. The good news is with Christ you have hope. The bad news is you're dead in your trespasses and sin. The good news is that Christ died to pay the price for your sin. The bad news is you owe a debt that you can't pay. The good news is Jesus Christ has paid it in full. The bad news is, is that you can't. The good news is, is he can't. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gatt. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.